you know, I, I see all these things and you, I think that a lot of people in their mind think, oh, she's in some, some large school with a lot of resources. No, we were in my school and there was, you know, a lot of really devoted teachers. All right, welcome to The Path Distilled. I'm your host, Kevin Harris. My co-host is Lauren Tashman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Path Distilled. And today we have an exciting guest. She's a PhD candidate, a researcher, and a woman in STEM. It's Emily Teddy. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, I guess with you, we've alluded to kind of what you're doing now. You're a PhD candidate and uh, just been a woman in STEM for a while. So... I guess let's jump into kind of how your journey began. Um, take us back to the early days of your academic uh, pursuits and kind of tell us how everything got started. So I feel like I've been a woman in STEM since I was born, really. Um, I was one of those kids that I always knew that I was going to get a PhD. I just didn't know in what. Um, I don't really know where that came from or where that started. My dad has a PhD, but it's in like agriculture and he worked in industry for it. Like he wasn't a professor most of my life. Um, but it turns out my mom told me this recently. We were talking about something when she would have to work nights. She worked at a community college. Um, she would be very strict with my dad. All right, here are the books that you read to the kids before. But I was, you know, in not even in elementary school yet. And what I did not remember because I was too young was instead he would take us to the library and check out some, you know, science for kids book. And then we would pick an experiment to do before mm. bed because he really didn't like reading. Um, <laughs> so that's where my mom credit the beginning of my scientific journey. Um, and it's just kind of been, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. So I'm a PhD student now at, at Florida Atlantic. Um, before that, I was an undergrad at Austin P State University. Um, I did one year at Washington University in St. Louis for my freshman year of undergrad. Um, and then I had a really unique high school experience where I went to um, a public boarding school in North Carolina, the North Carolina School of Science and Math. Um, and that was, I guess, the first time that I was in like a rigorous academic environment. So that, I, that was um, the second last two years of, of high school. So that was when I was six. 15 or 16. Uh, so I want to go back to the to your dad having you do experiments. Was, yeah. I know you I've, we've spoken in the past and your mom had wanted to cultivate critical thinking and things like that. Was it a truly um, a way to get out of reading with your dad or do you think he had a, a ulterior motive of uh, No, he did not want to read. Okay. <laughs> He likes science better than reading. So for him, that was more, that was a better way for him to engage with me and my, my older brother um, and relate to us. So he really didn't get into like the three little pigs. Um, that'd be more like a chore rather than like a bonding experience. Um, I'm assuming, you know, I was, I, I didn't even remember that this had happened until she mentioned this recently. Um, and then it all connected. So. And so what's the first academic activity that they am provided you that you remember so well I don't think this is the answer you're looking for um but I think it was actually chess 
Um, in my family, uh, we started playing chess early. I don't really play anymore. I have a chess set, but I'm not very good anymore. Um, so my older brother, he's two years older. Uh, he started playing when he was five. I was the slacker. I didn't start till I was seven. So, um, so it was either chess or just either. Um, there's this really weird. There's no concise way to explain it. Um, competition that I was a part of throughout all of elementary school and and basically all of middle school called Odyssey of the Mind. Um, and it's just really when you're in it, you get it. But when you're not, it just sounds like one big confusing whirlwind. Um, but essentially, the premise is you have a team of five to seven students. Um, so they can typically they're either all in elementary school or all in middle school or all in high school. There is a college division, um, but it's you get more teams the younger you go because people just run out of time. Um, but you have all school year to write a skit that falls into certain parameters, build the set, make the costumes, everything, like, produce the skit. Um, there's a monetary limit. Like, I don't think you can spend more than like $150. Um, and only the team members can contribute to that. So if it is a team of, of seven, eight-year-olds, those seven, eight-year-olds have to figure out how to build a set. Um, and such the, the long form. Um, and then there's a short form, which is really just like quick thinking, um, quick, they might give you a prompt, like, you know, if you were a Cheerio, what would you say? And then like a creative response would be like, oh, kind of deal. Um, you know, and a common response would be, I'm a Cheerio. Um, and then there's this last little component that, is like a they give you some kind of task and like five minutes to do it and you have to solve the task to the best of your ability but also as creatively as possible so the whole competition is centered around creative problem solving um so i remember there was one time i think it was actually my older brother's team that my mom was coaching that particular day and they were talking about how to do this one um you know requirement for the skit so they had to um, transport this like small, very fragile balsa wood structure like across the staging area um, without touching it or something like that. And I remember sitting in on the practice and also the coaches can only ask questions. They can't say, what, what, like, you should do this, you should do that. Um, and I remember they were having this big discussion about it. And so one thing the coach can do is, is kind of clarify or, or remind, you know, explain to them the Odyssey of the Mind approach. I mean, that is, you will get more points, you will be more successful if you're, you're taking a risk where you're being creative. Um, so even if you know, your, your thing fails halfway through and it crashes and burns, and so you don't officially complete the task or get those points, you're still going to get the creativity points of they really took a risk, they thought outside the box, so they reward for that as well. And that really, I think a lot about thinking and the way that I, uh, approach problems now is, in my opinion, a direct result of my participation in Odyssey of the Mind. And I think it was, I started, well, in, until you get to third grade, you're, you don't officially compete. There's like a, a primary division where, you know, the small children go and, and do their thing and then they're not scored, they're just celebrated. Um, so I was involved in Odyssey of the Mind since I was six. And knowing what I know now, which is very little, about neuroscience and, and brain development and developmental psychology. I think that 
it was probably pretty prudent or, or it, I think there's a neurological basis for the impact that Odyssey the Mind had on me. Is this the mascot we're showing? Yeah, I don't know why it's a raccoon. Um, <laughs> may, I, I, don't, I don't know the story behind Omer. Um, so Odyssey the Mind, we abbreviate as OM, so you're an Omer. Mm. Um, but he was there every competition. Well, if, I guess if they ever need a replacement, I've practiced wearing my pants that baggy, so I could probably <laughs> fill in at some point. So do you think, um, it sounds obvious that that you have a sense that that kind of cultivated a way of thinking for you and maybe happened early enough that it had a neurological basis. Um, do you think if that was, if more students attended that, do you think it would have a an overall impact of creating a greater ability to do critical thinking in a larger, a broader audience, or do you think the, um, I guess I don't know where to go with my question. Do you think it would impact <laughs> a greater number of people if it was actually more widespread or had more participants? No, I, I completely do. Um, and, and I'm not the only one that thinks that. Um, so I, I talk a lot about my, my mom and my family. My mom at that point when I was in elementary school was an elementary school teacher, but she didn't teach like fourth grade reading or something like that. She was one of like the rotational teachers. Like you go to art once a week and PE once a week. I don't know how she defined her class. It was just like Janet's class. Um, we did chess. She, she taught, well, she tried. She tried to teach every elementary schooler chess one year, including kindergartners, um, which did not work. But starting first grade, when you were at my elementary school, which was in rural North Carolina, it was a very poor town. Um, there was a lot of, it, it you know, I, I see all these things and you, I think that a lot of people in their mind think, oh, she's in some, some large school with a lot of resources. No, we were in my school and there was, you know, a lot of really devoted teachers. And so um, what my mom did in her classroom was she would go through these units. So there was the chess unit. Um, when you were in fifth grade, it was so fun. She set up a whole murder mystery in one part of the school that everyone had to walk past. So then every year you're like, oh, when I'm in fifth grade, I get to look at that crime scene. Um, <laughs> she was also the gifted ed facilitator, but she brought a lot of like the gifted ed resources into the instruction for the general students. So for Odyssey of the Mind, <laughs> she had tryouts. Um, she did like a, an OM unit where those shorter term projects of like, you have five minutes to complete this task in the most creative way possible. Um, she had every student in the school doing that for like six weeks. And then at the end, she said, if you want to try out for Odyssey the Mind, tryouts are, you know, this Thursday evening, come at this time. Um, so it was something that even if you were not a participant or a competitor in OM at, at my school, A, you knew about it. I mean, it was a small town, um, but you had had, if you were a child in that school, you had experience or exposure to trying to think critically and understand what is a creative approach. It's okay to take risks. You're still going to get points. It's okay if you fail, you're, you know, if you fail, but you tried hard, like that's not a, a failure in the OM world. And have you heard reports or I guess personally witnessed any occasions where that became a turning point for any of those other students that might not have been aware of their potential? 
it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to say because if you were in that that school, you had Janet Hanson looking out for your potential since day one. <laughs> um, so we had uh, a really diverse group of students that had been identified as academically gifted. Um, and it, I mean, if you were gifted and you're in the gifted class or whatever at Wallace Elementary School, um, you were probably involved with Odyssey the Mind. Um, not everyone, it wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but it wasn't just the gifted kids in OM. Um, and so that was really cool. And, and to think back on my experiences with OM, um, it, was, it was a really welcoming environment. Um, and I like the, the teamwork component of it as well, because you're there to support each other. And so you have students that, you know, you don't know what's happening outside the class and you don't know what's happening outside the school. They could have been identified as gifted. They could be an at-risk student, um, but they're welcome in OM and they learn that with this group of, of five to seven of your peers, we're just going to try some really crazy stuff and see what works. So I don't know, you know, if it made a profound effect on anyone. Um, it's also, that's not really the kind of thing you talk about when you're nine. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how it couldn't. Sorry, I had uh, this image of like, based on that quip about uh, these nine-year-olds sitting around. So how's your uh, gifted is coming along? <laughs> so, um, well, that's fascinating. So did, uh, was your mom bringing some of the activities home or giving you different tasks at home? We, we weren't home often. <laughs> we, were, we were at OM or chess club, or we did Invent America. We also, my mom, God bless her, um, it was her rule in the family that until you graduated high school, you had to be actively practicing a musical instrument. Um, and then also all throughout elementary school, we were required to, within my family, um, sign up for sport, which was just catastrophic. Um, my brother and I have zero athletic abilities. Um, so we, we didn't have a whole lot of, of home. When we were home, we were resting because we had so many other things that we were doing. So, so go ahead, Laura. Sorry, I was going to ask what, what sport did you, or sports did you oh. try and what musical instruments? So we started, we both, both my brother and I started on piano. Um, and we did piano all throughout elementary school. And then in middle school, we moved from rural North Carolina to like the Raleigh area, Raleigh-Durham area. And then I convinced my mom that handbells counted. So I signed up for a church handbell choir, youth choir. And then I did that until I went to boarding school and I was like, oh no, I can't play a musical <laughs> instrument. My brother went the opposite approach. He started on, on piano and now I think he can, I think he has to be able to play almost all He's a, a um, he's getting his master's in woodwind conducting now. He was a band teacher for four, four years, and he'll be after a um, a doctorate in like music performance. So he really not like held on to the um, the piano playing and the musical uh, side of things. As for sports, um, Tyler was big on soccer. I let's see, I tried soccer. I was goalie and I remember crying a lot because I hit get in the face. So then they were like, all right, well, let's put her in basketball because my dad loves basketball. He wanted, my dad wanted to name me and my brother Nike and Adidas because he thought that would be great for sponsorship <laughs> opportunities. Um, 
so that's that's a disappointment so I played basketball throughout the rest of elementary school and uh, oh and I played softball which was like I think I hit the ball about once a season so I would only ever get on base if a ball hit me when I was trying to bat so, so you know whatever way counts no I'm kidding. right <laughs> So that's I saw, the risk taking from a limb <laughs> put yourself out there yeah um, so i saw a meme recently that said i wish my parents had not left me alone to make my own choices i wish they would have had me do the things that you talked about uh, do a sport or an instrument or something like that did you resent it at the time i wanted to quit mostly the sports i mean i wanted to quit piano too but oh i, did, I guess i did play saxophone um sixth grade um, and then I quit that as soon as I could. Um, and then moved to handout. I remember there's one memory that I had that's very salient. And I think it was about softball or maybe the six weeks of Taekwondo that I did or just some sport that one of the sports that I was very bad at. And I remember desperately wanting to quit. And I, was, I remember I was, so I was in elementary school at some point probably mid to late elementary school and I remember crying to my mom and saying I just I want to quit I think it was softball I want to quit softball I'm no good at it I don't get along with the players because they get frustrated because I'm so bad you know I this is I want to quit I they're they're not going to miss me I'm not going to miss it and uh, she said well it's good that you know all this information and we're not going to sign you up for softball next year but we don't quit things so you're going to have to stick it out and just warm that bench for the rest of the season and I did, and I think that that lesson of you don't quit was probably an important one for them to distill into me or, or to, to not give me any other option. So I think that they, uh, they required a lot of us, you know, looking back, you know, maybe we didn't need to do chess club and OM and Invent America and a sport and a musical instrument. Like there was, we were doing something every night, but I think that the skills that I that I got from those activities and the lessons about like you know not quitting and and trying your best at something that you are really bad at um, were probably worth it. So, are you reading a lot during that time period? Reading? Yeah, were you a big reader? I remember my my mom's such a teacher. She every summer like we had to read for at least an hour a day. Um, and I remember really liked reading, except in third grade when at school they told me I had to read so many books, and then I like just completely revolted. And I think I spent like almost six months reading holes. Um, and then they finally got on, and my third grade teacher didn't know what to do. She's like, "Well, Emily, you know, is identified as gifted at reading, and her mom's a gifted instructor, and like I don't want to be the one to tell her mom, hey, you know, your kid's cheating the system." But um, but I, I think I enjoyed reading. I read a lot, but I don't know how much of that was um, mandated in my household. My mom, I remember we, um, we got really into the Lemony Snicket series. And there was one summer that we were like, we just found it, so we were trying to catch up. And my mom would spend hours, um, I was pretty young, so I wasn't, it wasn't like it was above my reading level. Um, my mom would spend hours reading those books aloud to me and my brother. Um, so that was pretty cool. And so you're progressing through elementary school. What happens after elementary? Uh, we moved to, to the big city of Raleigh, North Carolina. 
it was a much different environment. So I was used to being in this tiny town um, where you knew everyone and, uh, you know, to this big, it felt like a big urban environment. You know, now that I've lived elsewhere, I'm thinking, really, it's not that urban. It was in a much larger school. So when I was in fifth grade, I think, you know, across all classes, we had maybe 100, 100 fifth graders in the school. Whereas if I had stayed, if I hadn't gone to boarding school, my graduating class would have been between six and 700. Um, I think we were like the second or third largest high school in the country, or the state. And so I, you know, middle school is just tough for everyone. Middle schoolers, you know, are awful. And so I did not really find a, a place that I really felt comfortable. I did, I didn't do obviously the, mind, the year after we moved because I didn't know anyone and I was just kind of overwhelmed. Uh, my whole family was. It was a big move for us. And then in seventh grade, we got back into it. There was a big OM presence at my middle school already. My mom didn't have to start that. Like she started everything at my elementary school. But I uh, think I competed in seventh grade. Maybe not. Um, if I did, we didn't get very far. We, I'd never, we'd always gotten, not always, but we often went to, there's like a regional round and then a state round and then the world final. Um, I'd gotten to state, I had not gotten to a world. And so eighth grade comes along and I get on a team. And so there are different genres. So there's like the more mechanic ones where you have to build something to do something or a vehicle or, or whatnot. Um, and then there's more of like the literary ones where you have to, you know, it, it has to be a musical or it has to, it, it's, it is related to like mythology and stuff like that. Um, and I always liked the more hands-on building stuff ones. But we did the classical one, the mythology one, which I thought was probably a little bit easier because we didn't have to build anything. We had some really artistic members on that team. And that team, we went to world finals, which was a big accomplishment for me because I hadn't gotten there before. I think we placed ninth. Uh, we weren't top five, but I think we were like top 10 or top 20. Um, and so that helped to kind of get me back into the swing of things, feel like myself again, I suppose. And then in high school, we didn't really have an opportunity for OI. It just, it's a lot harder in high school. You're a lot busier. It's harder to like move your team to high school because a lot of them, you know, half the team is in middle school, still half the team in high school. And it just, it really pitters out when you get to the high school and college division. So I didn't do anything like that in high school, but I did compete in forensics. So we did, let's see, I was in impromptu speaking, which is for most people in like the the NFL, the National Forensics League, not what my dad would have preferred that I play football. <laughs> if you do impromptu speaking, you don't have to prepare for it at all because like you literally make up a speech on the spot. Um, so most people will like have a speech event and then do impromptu like on the side. I was just there to do impromptu speaking. So I was not very good and I had a lot of free time. So it was like, I didn't have the traditional experience. I, even though my high school was in this big urban area and like a large school, we had a, a um, incredibly small uh, speech and debate club. So like at most two of us would go to a competition. So it was, it was nice. It was fun. Um, it got, I got to, to use some of that creative problem solving. So that was good, but it wasn't the same as OM. And then I also got involved with uh, youth in government, which is run jointly between schools and the YMCA. So there, that was really cool because you set up a whole mock government for a weekend in um, in Raleigh. So for us, we didn't have to travel far. But there's something like 
close to 2,000 students from across the state that come. And you can choose to be in the legislative body um, or the judicial body, or there is an executive branch. And so if you are legislative, then you write your own bill to submit for, um, for them to, there's like the top 50 bills get put in the bill book and you spend all week going through as if it's, you know, you're divided into the House and the Senate and, and you debate them like congressional debate. And then judicial was the, the appeals court or the APA, I can't, I don't remember how to pronounce that, that word, um, where they, the apple, apple something. Appellate. Appellate. I can see the word in my mind. I just couldn't like <laughs> figure out where to put the, um, the emphasis. Yes. So then they would be reviewing. It wasn't like trying, you know, criminals. It was trying the judicial system. Um, and then each year we would elect the next year's governor. Um, and then the governor would appoint the governor's cabinet. So it was a little bit of a competition. Um, there was a competition asked, like they, they gave out awards for like best debater and whatnot, but it wasn't, it wasn't a team thing. You were individual, which I was fine with. I, you know, I liked debating and I liked the whole notion of, it, it was kind of like impromptu speaking because you, you got the bill book when you got it. You're like, you're not going to prepare debates for 50 bills kind of deal. So it was really just kind of getting up there with all these, uh, these fellow nerds um, that have chosen to do this at their weekend wearing suits and trying to figure out where did that person just just mess up or where can I call them on it um so that was really into like the critical thinking part it played in there and so that was a lot of fun so I did that all throughout high school even at the boarding school but at that point I had to start my own chapter there well I did want to talk a little bit about it looks like Laura might have a question first no I was just going to ask how you ended up going to that boarding school that was my question (laughs) There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so that, um, this is so not like, uh, I'm not telling these stories chronologically. Um, let's see, I was 11 and uh, we were at the dinner table. So maybe this is after we moved, I don't remember. I don't think so though. Sometime, you know, 10 or 11. And my dad mentioned the North Carolina School of Science and Math. And I never heard of that. And I remember just asking him, I don't remember exactly how that conversation goes. I just know that I was like 10 or 11. That's the story that we have in our family. I mean, he explained, well, it's this boarding school for the top science and math students in the state. Um, and it's, it's pretty competitive and you go, and I don't, I don't even remember all the details. He said, all I knew was that it was a school that you would live at with the top STEM students. And I thought that is where I want to be. And so I, I, always like dreamed of going to NCSSM since elementary school which is not common when I moved in it was funny because everyone's like you know when did you know that you were going to come or whatever and they were like well you know I got my acceptance and I was really mulling it over you know when did you and I was like oh since I was 10 like (laughs) my dad mentioned at the dinner table so that that was always kind of a goal of mine and it was really funny I was thinking about this maybe it was this morning even as I was thinking about doing this this podcast I remember in the, the speech and debate club at my, my regular high school talking about like, you know, what next year looks like or something like that. And I mentioned at some point that I was going to go to NCSSM. Um, and I phrased it that way. I'm going to NCSSM when I am a junior. And at that point, I was a freshman. And the kid who was, I think, a freshman or a senior at that point was like, wait, don't you have to apply to, to get in to go there? And I was like, oh, yeah, but like, I'm going to go. And so... Uh, that was just always on my radar. That was always where I was headed. Sophomore year rolls around and I see the informational flyer and I take a picture of it um, with my flip phone 
and because we couldn't just text photos to each other at that point. Um, so I took a picture of it and I showed my parents when I got home and, and I said, all right, so Thursday evening, we're going to go to this informational session. And they're like, yep, we are. And, you know, I, I was just sold from the minute that I heard about it. Um, it was one of the best experiences of my life. As a uh, senior in high school, I was taking math classes that like Austin P doesn't even offer to undergrads. Um, I did not, I mean, I passed them, but I didn't like, you know, ace them. I passed them, I think, partially out of pity. My, my professor had for me, she thought that I worked really hard and some of the questions still haunt me, but I, uh, I had so many unique opportunities there um, to take upper division classes, to take class, like I took intro to robotics, which wasn't offered um, at regular high schools at that point. There was this research program well, they were, they had a handful of research programs. The one that I think it was the most prestigious, that's just because I got into it, was mentorship, where you would be responsible for finding a mentor in a university lab nearby. And they, if you could get the mentor to sign on, they would bus you there Tuesdays and Thursday evening or uh, afternoons for the whole day or the whole afternoon and work on university level research. And so we, that school was in Durham, North Carolina. So you can imagine um, we had plenty of uh, potential mentors. I got into it. And at that point, I thought I was going to be a doctor because that's just what, you know, you think when you're, you know, a nerdy kid, that you're going to be a doctor. And so I wanted to do biomedical research. Um, and I'm a type 1 diabetic. So I wanted to study type 1 diabetes because I had intimate knowledge of the disorder and um, could not find anyone that would take me. To the point, I emailed someone, maybe at UNC. Most most students either went to, to Duke or UNC to do their their mentorship. And this guy, Dr. Booz, like re responded to my email or called me or something and said, you know, I, I can't take you on, but I can put your your cover letter, your resume on blast, um, and just see if there's anyone in the area. So from there, I got hooked up with um with Dr. Dr. Sexton at uh, North Carolina Central University, which is, I think, just incredibly fitting. You know, I, all of my enriched education experience at this point before the boarding school always came from this underfunded, um, very racially diverse, very just poor little town that I was living in, in Wallace, North Carolina, and their, their public school system. I've only ever gone to, to public school. And of course, I'm not going to Duke, I'm not going to UNC, I'm going to the underfunded historically black college nearby. Um, that's where they have the people to support me and, and the, the resources they want to. And that was just, I mean, it, I look back on that, my time in that program and think, wow, I was doing research so wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I have a lot of like, um, I guess embarrassment when I think back to, you know, what little 17 year old Emily was doing in the lab and how much they let me do. That was probably their mistake. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, it's what got me into research. Um, so even though I don't study medicine or diabetes anymore, that was instrumental for me to get to where I am. I'm curious about uh, when you arrive at the boarding school, what was it like? It's, to use a sports analogy, people talk about entering the professional leagues, and I know that's not exactly probably more of a high caliber collegiate team in this example, but uh, they talk about being the, you know, the best of the best in high mm -hmm. school and then the competition equaling out. What was that like for you when you, not competition is probably the wrong word, but you're 
no, peers were so much yeah. more uh, capable. What was that like? No, I remember it with my calc class. Um, so if you were placed into, you, there was a whole placement test day that you had to come for in the summer. And they wouldn't place you in just a regular calc one class if you were coming in. If you were coming in and you'd taken pre-calc, either you were good enough at pre-calc that they wanted to place you in like the advanced calc BC with advanced topics or something, accelerated calc, whatever, like the top calc, like the, the really fancy calc class. And if you couldn't swing it in there, then they were going to put you back into pre-cal and trig and you had to retake it because you didn't have, they wouldn't, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the, the reasoning behind all that or if that's something that should happen or not, but, but I was placed into that accelerated health class where like probably 60 or 70% were seniors. And then because of that placement, oh goodness, I was placed in a, like AP chemistry, despite not having ever taken chemistry. Um, and that's where I found out I did not want to, well, I didn't, I should have found out that I did not want to be a doctor. The amount of times that I called my mom at 2 a.m. crying over chemistry. She, I mean, it, it, my mom is a saint. So chem was hard. I was always, I loved math. I've always loved math. And it was the first time that I wasn't the superstar of a math class. And so that shook me more than, than the crying over chemistry and orbitals and electrons and all that. But I remember it, it, it was an adjustment, but I didn't have like an extreme negative reaction to that. I remember I, so I had gotten knee surgery that summer um, and I was still in physical therapy and my mom, thankfully it was only about 30 minutes away from where my parents were. So it was great because twice a week for the first month, my mom drove up and took me to physical therapy and we would just gab the entire time because I hadn't seen her. So then I got really close to my physical therapist as well because she's just sitting there like, all right, so maybe we try this exercise while you talk. And I remember telling her, I was in the car to go to, to PT one day and I was like, you know, it's, it's weird. I am, I'm not the lowest in the calc class. Like I had a very like realistic sense of where I was. I was right in the middle. And I thought, I, this has never happened before. But I think it's okay. Like it's not, I, I don't remember having any negative associations with not being the top of the count class. And so that was something, that was the first time that had ever happened. But it felt, I think whatever reaction I had to that was just outweighed by this sense of like, this is where I belong. That it was like, you know what, like this is what it means. So the, the motto for North Carolina School of Science and Math is accept the greater challenge. And I joke, that sounds like a great model before you go to science and math, because you've never been, you've never done the, the greater challenge, but you don't know how hard that's going to be. Because when you get there, I mean, it, like, so it's on a trimester, like halfway through the, the, your junior year, everyone is just sad <laughs> and stressed because the novelty has worn off. It's really hard. You're not allowed, we weren't allowed cars, so you only had to, you could only walk off campus and you couldn't walk off campus after dark and it got dark at like 4.30. Winter of, fresh, of um, junior year was rough. I almost didn't go back after Thanksgiving break. Hmm. I really wanted to quit. I remember just like putting softball, I was crying and my mom was very supportive but hated that I was at boarding school. Uh, my brother was two years older than me. So he started college the same year I started boarding school we moved out within 24 hours of each other so my mom went from two to an empty nester real quick and she missed me and she didn't you know she didn't like that she well she just 
she liked that I was there, but she missed me. And I remember pleading with her, don't make me go back. Don't make me go back. Like, I'll be a failure. That's fine. It's hard. It's too much. Um, And she was like, well, you can cry all you want, but in 30 minutes, we're going to head back to Durham. So she uh, made me get out of the car and she hugged me and sent me on my way. And, And I think that was probably one of the hardest things that she had to do. Because I was sitting there saying, Mom, I want to come home. I want to, I want to live with you. I want to, you know, and she was like, well, you're in it now. Do you think that that experience of seeing others that were, or just being in the middle of the pack for the first time, do you think that required a recalibration or did you know that was possible going in of the way you thought about yourself, recalibration? I, not only do I think that I knew it was possible, I think I had always been longing for it. Hmm. Growing up, it was, you know, me and my brother at home and, and he and I, I'm realizing now, think very differently. Um, and we're, six, we're both high achieving. We're both, you know, we have these accolades and, you know, whatever awards or whatever. His is because he is one of the hardest workers I know. Mine is because I lucked into being able to learn quickly. And so I always was seeing how hard my brother worked and how, you know, successful he was and thinking, okay, like there are others out there. And I always, you know, thought my brother was smarter than me. So I, at no point was I ever like, I'm the smartest person in the room. I just wanted more of those people that I could relate to. As you're progressing through the boarding school program, uh, what happens next? So there's this culture um, senior year at NCSSM that you apply to an obscene amount of schools. My, my best friend couldn't name all of the schools he applied to when I asked him. He's like, there are 12. And then he tries to list them. And I'm like, all right, so don't apply to the last two because you don't remember. Like, Because <laughs> it's also expensive to apply for undergrads. Mm-hmm. I uh, applied to all of like the local schools and like an idiot was like, oh, well, I'm not going to go to UNC or NC, uh, NC State. Like that's beneath me. Because we were, you know, we were all just super arrogant and, you know, we had survived NCSSM, we could, we could do anything, but we thought. I toured WashU in St. Louis, um, and I fell in love with the campus. And I thought, this is it, this is where I want to be. It was one of the best biomedical programs in the, the country or the world even. Um, and that's, even though chemistry made me cry so much, I really thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I applied there, I applied to UVA, Cornell, and then like NC State, Duke, UNC, and I think that was it. And I applied early, whatever the one is where you're not committed to go. I applied early to as many as I could. I remember I applied early to UVA. I mean, I I liked UVA, we had toured it. And UVA deferred my application. And then I had a meltdown. Um, I went to my RA's room and sat on the carpet and ate a whole box of grilled cookies and just cried. And my mom had gotten me a Janet doll, which is just this really ugly doll that's like pretty thick. So you can just like hit it on stuff. <laughs> so I did that for the whole afternoon um, because I thought if UVA is, you know, not, not chomping at the bit, I have no hope to get in for uh-oh. Like I'll I get need to ask, the- Hold on. I got to ask your mom about this doll. This sounds like a great thing. <laughs> so she, after she worked at, in the elementary school for, um, all, for seven or eight years, when we moved, she, she uh, started working in the church. She has a master's in Christian education and also with mm. like, and also a master's in, in special ed. 
um, my family really likes fancy pieces of paper that you have to spend lots of money to get. And so when she started working in the church um, as like the youth program coordinator, the, the pastor that would like to send to her boss gave her her first damn doll. And so since then, when I went to this math and was having a really hard time, my mom gave me a damn it doll and it came in, in use. So I had a breakdown with the damn it doll about the UVA deferral and freaked out. Um, that was the first one that I'd heard back from. And then, you know, UNC and NC State came back and they said, you know, yes, of course, you know, you're an in-state student, you're from NCSSM. Like the school was like it, within the research triangle part, this boarding school was, was really well known. And so they had set up accreditation agreements. So if you took one class at NCSSM and went to, to UNC, that would count for, you know, their whatever class. So I could, if I'd gone to NC State or UNC, I would have shaved off like three semesters worth of classes. Um, and of course, being young and dumb and 18 and not having any concept of money or student loans, I was like, well, why would I do that? And so uh, I freaked out about UVA and then I got my WashU letter and they accepted me. Um, and they didn't give me as much of a financial aid packet that I think we were hoping for. But in my mind, this was my dream and this is, and I was going to be a doctor. So of course I could, you know, however much I needed in student loans I could take out because I was going to be a doctor. And I did apply for federal work study. And I remember I was on this um, Facebook group of all the incoming freshmen. And when the work study announcements came out, someone was like bragging on fate, you know, oh, well, I got, you know, a, a chem assistant or whatever, where they would be like cleaning the beakers or whatnot. I thought mine was a mistake because it said I would be a research assistant in the medical school in the infectious diseases department. That was, so I got to watch you and I, I was not digging it, but I really loved my work study. Uh, so I was on, I was on like a, a lab funded through the NIH to study the colonization and decolonization of MRSA. I was hired as a fluke because the PI of the lab um, was on vacation. And so the like next guy up, Patrick, well, the PI had gone, because she's like, well, I'm not going to need to hire any undergrads. That'd be ridiculous. This is like important work we're doing. So, you know, that wasn't even a thought for her. I don't know why Patrick opened that, you know, email of all the applications, but he did. And he saw my school, my boarding school, and he had gone to UNC. So he knew my school. He saw that I had been in a biomedical lab for this research mentorship thing. So he hired me. And the PI was not happy, but it was already done. So I worked in that lab for a year and I, I earned her respect. Um, I learned a lot about not knowing much of anything and uh, asking questions and writing things down and like not like don't let your pride get in the way. But that was really the only experience at WashU I, I really liked. I didn't really feel like I was connected to the student body. It was it was a private school. It was very expensive. So it draws the majority of students fall into certain demographics, certain SES. And I had been around that when I was in middle and high school for the first part um, of high school, you know, when we moved to the Raleigh area. But, you know, my roots, my elementary school was in this very rural, you know, practically impoverished community. And even the boarding school that I went to, they pull an equal number of students from each congressional district. So it wasn't like it was just, you know, the, the rich kids and the the well-funded school districts that were getting these opportunities. Um, and I just felt very out of place at WashU. And so I um, learned about Austin P. 
and I told my parents I want to transfer from WashU to Austin P. And that was a really rough summer because they were like, all right, so you want to transfer from the 14th school in the nation to an unranked state school. Why? And uh, I said, uh, I had visited Austin P. And at that, so at, at, between going to WashU and hating WashU, I finally realized that chemistry was just too depressing for me and that I was not a, a bio major or a chem major or like a, a pre-med. I wasn't pre-med. And I went to my academic advisor and I said, okay, I'm not pre-med. I think I want to be an engineer. And he's like, all right, calm down. You're going to be undecided for a while and it's going to be fine. And so then there was like a semester where each, every other week I changed my major. I mean, I didn't tell anyone because he wouldn't let me, but um, you know, I was a classical studies major one week where I was looking at, you know, being an archeologist in, in Athens. And then I was a physics major until I really took physics. And then I wasn't a physics major. And I realized like the, the one class that I was consistently like not skipping were my calc classes. And so I thought, okay, math is really what I love. That's the thing that I've always loved. I have never cried over math. Maybe this is where I need to go. And then I freaked out, what do you do with a math major? With a, if you're going to be a doctor, you can afford the student debt. If you're a math major, no one knows what you're going to do. And I thought, all right, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like the idea that I'm taking out so much money to be in a place I don't really like to be in. And so against my parents' wishes, I transferred to Austin P. Um, I had gone and, and visited the math. I, I didn't think that I was going to like Austin P. And so I tried to just sneak in just for a quick visit to say that I looked at it. And I, I emailed Dr. Menser in the math department because he did graph theory in one of the classes I took at Austin P or, or I'm at, at my um, boarding school was graph theory. And he was like, yeah, of course I'll meet with you. Let me loop in our department chair. Um, and I was like, well, that's not <laughs> the quiet visit I was hoping for. And so I met Dr. Sam Jader, who is one of the most supportive people I've ever met in my life. He spent a lot of time with me and he brought in faculty from all areas in the math department to meet me and, and to try to, to get me to, to come to Austin P. And I thought, all right, um, I said, I need to do undergraduate research and I need to do a study abroad. Those are the things that I need for me to come to Austin P. He said, undergrad research, we have these little funded you know, grants. He's like, there's an application that I'll work with you on to submit for your, your first grant, um, which is like $5,000. And then for study abroad, he says, find the opportunity and we'll do it. And so I told my parents, I said, listen, this is, this feels right. This is where I'm going to go. Um, and Dr. Jader made good on his promises and then some. So I did the, the undergrad research grant at Austin P. And then I got to go to, I was the first Austin P student to go to the Budapest semesters in mathematics, where I was living with someone from Harvard and there was Berkeley and Stanford and like all the big names. And they actually, Austin P, the math department helped fund my tuition to go to Budapest, which was just, let's just say the, the girl that lived, that, that was from Harvard, um, did not get funding to go to Budapest. And uh, I went to a research lab. I did uh, a research experience for undergrad through the NSF. Um, so I lived in DC for the summer after Budapest, where I worked in a lab uh, affiliated with Virginia Tech. And my work there and, and my mentor at that lab was really what steered my direction to my graduate um, like selection, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to study. Maybe too much, but we're here now. So everything that Dr. Jader, everything that I told Dr. Jader I needed, he made sure that it happened. 
and along the way he was able to give me more than I even could have realized that I could have asked for. I think it should be mentioned that uh, doesn't he have a mathematical technique or process named after him? Yes, the Jader method. Um, and so, so I heard about Austin P because there was um, someone that I knew at WashU from Clarksville, from where Austin P is. And in that person's calculus class, they mentioned the Jader method. And so I thought, okay, like this isn't just some nobody from some, you know, school that I never heard of. Like this guy's method is being taught or being mentioned in in the WashU Calc classes. So, okay, so maybe this is something to look into. And so you mentioned that, that Virginia Tech experience led you to kind of what you pursued in graduate school. So could you talk a little bit about that transition? Yeah, before that summer, I, I was pretty sure I was going to get, I knew I wanted to go back to North Carolina and I was a SAPS major and I loved it. So I was pretty sure I was going to go to Duke, NC State, or UNC, all the school, well, I didn't look down on Duke, but they waitlisted me, and I wanted to get a PhD in stats. I was pretty sure that's what I was going to do. Along the way at Austin P. so I'd always loved psychology. Um, it was kind of like my, my, my guilty pleasure. My, at boarding school, when I was, when I graduated, our commencement speaker was Dan Ariely, who is, um, at that point, at, I think he's still at Duke, um, and also there was a, a fellow in the community that I knew that that was a, a psych professor at Duke. Dan Ariely gave this talk about behavioral economics. Um, and he also, he dressed as a Jedi, which no one really was sure why. Um, he didn't talk about Star Wars. Uh, the most he said was something about good and evil. <laughs> but um, it's memorable. <laughs> you know, he knighted our <laughs> chancellor with his lightsaber. So there's, how many times can you say that? Um, but I thought his talk was really interesting. And so um, someone had given me, after attending my graduation, his book as a, as a graduation gift, Predictably Irrational. And I thought, well, that's super interesting how humans are like bad at making decisions. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I loved about it was how hard it was for him to study human behavior and like the stories that he writes in that book, because it's, it's not like, you know, it's popular press. And so it's, it's not just this is a study, here are the results. It's like, yeah, I was sitting at this bar with a friend and we came up with this idea for a study. And so we called the department chair and said, hey, can you give us $300 to buy a lot of beer for this study on the, on the fly or whatever? Which now that I know more about IRB, I feel like it's probably not how that actually happened. Um, <laughs> but I was like, how fascinating how he has to think about what he wants to study. And then really think about what he wants to, like, what does that mean in real, like, not just the fancy abstract, like, word you can throw out, but what's the thing that you can operate, how, how can you operationalize it, how can you define it, then how can you study it with as little interaction as possible? Mm-hmm. And I thought, that sounds like obviously the mind. And so I loved this notion of, like, how do you do, like, this seems impossible, and you have to really just strip everything back down to its basics to understand how you get to where you're going. And so uh, I uh, had always kind of loved psychology, but I didn't really pursue it until I had to take Psych 101 um, or whatever the number is at Austin P. And uh, through uh, an interesting turn of events, I ended up in, in Dr. Hatz's class. Uh, and just the, the broad general psych class, um, I was like, all right. I need to do this more. So I picked up a minor in psychology in my last two years. 
And that helped my application for the research lab in DC stand out because they were the social indecision analytics lab. So I could come as someone who has a, a um, concentration of, uh, I'm getting a, a bachelor's in stats, but I also have some background in psychology. And so that, because I had applied the year before and I did not get an interview. Um, and then the next year I applied again and I had a little bit more on my resume and I had a, a psych affiliation on my resume. And they, that's when they offered me a position. And I uh, met Mark Orr and that in and of itself is, is a story. But he was obsessed with this um, paper that had just come out in psych, re- or, yeah, psych Review where this this person is proposing a whole new model of how to represent attitudes as networks, but it wasn't like it made a lot of claims that it didn't really address, and like the math and the stats behind it weren't really well explained. And so he's like, "It'll be great. We'll work for four weeks, and we'll be able to like publish this huge paper about it all." Um, and so I've joked that that's the longest four weeks of my life because we still have not wrapped that project up. Um, <laughs> So we worked for that on that for about a year well, until I graduated, um, and then until I well really until I started grad school. But at that point, this whole notion of of graph theory, of data science, of psychology really fascinated me, and I thought, all right, I managed to let Mark talk me out of a PhD in stats from some school in North Carolina to applying for PhDs in psychology um, with a computational focus across the entire country. And so I applied to, to MIT and never heard back, um, to Berkeley, and they sent a very sweet rejection letter. But I ultimately got um, an interview at USC um, in Southern California, one at, at CMU at Carnegie Mellon, and then at the la- like 11th hour, um, FAU called. And so I had, I was sitting on um, one acceptance, waiting on one rejection, and I was about to accept the other offer that I had on the table. And then I remember I got a phone call from a number I didn't know. And I had gone to the clinic. I had just been like given a, a strep test. So I was positive for strep. So I went home, changed in my pajamas, and was just going to sleep the rest of the day. And I get this, this phone call. And I said, uh, I pick it up, and he's like, hi, I'm Elon Barinholtz. And I said, who? So... At FAU, there are two people that that um, really do the kind of work that Mark and I were working on. Um, and not only did like they kind of, they are two of like the founders kind of, like they write the textbooks on these kinds of things. So those are the two that I applied to work with naturally. But FAU, you have to put a third person. Um, and so I put Elon as my third person because he was working in like, um, like deep learning, closer to like AI kinds of things. And I was like, well, that looks more interesting to me than like developmental psychology. Um, so I need a third name. I'll just put it on there. I'm going to like, I met Robert and non, I met the, the other two at, at a conference. So I told them to look over it. You know, I was like, of course, like if they don't want me, you know, then they don't want me. But um, I did never realize that, that Elon would see my application before them and scoop it up. And so he's like, I want to bring you out for an interview. And it's like mid-March at this point. So like, this is, like, I need to tell, I'm within a month of needing to respond to my other offer. And I come out to the lab here at FAU and it was this really weird, hands-off, self-organized lab trying to do a whole lot of stuff. 
and it just had a lot of like really invested people, invested students. And I think, you know, looking back, that's probably the thing that I responded to the most. I mean, it's not to say that the other schools didn't have those students, but like, it's different when you're putting the pressure on yourself or you're like, it's, it's, it's coming, it's from the bottom up. So that's, I, I signed on with FAU and I didn't look back. And so I want to get your take on uh, the nature versus nurture angle. We ask every guest on their take. Um, so if you're to look at it as a continuum, this is potentially for the listener. And, you know, on one extreme you have, it's all natural ability. There's really no work required. The extreme on the other end would be, there's no natural ability. It's all hard work. And then everything else in between, where do you kind of fall on that approach? And particularly with your life experience. So I really hate being wrong. So I'm going to give like a very uh, stats that is like with a confidence interval kind of so <laughs> I was gonna say we're talking to a math major <laughs> well <laughs> I'm not a mathematician though I like to think that I am and then I met real mathematicians and I'm like oh I'm not a math <laughs> I usually like math it's different um no I would say I think it is very possible that with enough work you could do anything you want to do I think it's very possible that with enough work you are not dependent on any kind of predisposition, like a nature, natural predisposition with an asterisk. That's what, you know, there are some things that, you know, that are possibly just beyond that. But in general, I think that with enough hard work, you can do whatever you want to do. However, I think we have some biological predisposition to be better at some things than other, or to be able to work more efficiently at some tasks than other. So like I know that I could be a doctor if I wanted to. I could have passed all my chem classes. I could have, have gotten there. And I, I said this out loud to my parents. I said, I can be a doctor, but I'm going to hate the 10 years it'll take for me to be a doctor to be able to finally like what I'm doing. Or I can be a math major and like what I'm doing for the next 10 years as well as my career. So I think that I could have been a doctor. I think that, that people can, for the most part, overcome any kind of deficiencies or, or places where just naturally they're not going to feel as comfortable or be able to do as much. That said, I think if you're trying to get the biggest bang for your buck, you have to see what you're good at naturally and what things, like I, my mind works so well for math. I love math. I mean, not advanced math because I try to take those classes, but what I do now, my mind works really well for. It's, it's something that comes very naturally to me. Um, and so I don't have to work as hard than if I were trying to be a doctor because I'm working with those natural tendencies or those natural dispositions rather than against them. Had your mom not done the interventions that she had, had done, what do you think? So let's say you're magically in a different household or you're magically in a situation where neither of your parents paid much attention. What do you think your trajectory would have been like? I don't think it was the interventions necessarily. I think that gave me a head start, like OM and, and chess. And, you know, it, it, I got to start practicing those mental muscles a lot sooner than I think I would have if I wasn't in that situation. But if I were in another household where I wasn't as engaged or I wasn't as supported, I think that's a much bigger determinant, like, like factor 
in success is support and love and engagement. Curious because earlier you mentioned that your brother worked really hard and you were lucky to be a a good learner essentially. So curious how that weaves into your thoughts on this. That was, I was going to mention my brother as part of my answer. Um, he, and I have such a hard time with the labels that we put on saying, you know, high achiever, gifted, you know, he, he was identified as academically gifted, you know, and I, I, the word intelligence just has so much weight to it. Um, I tend to stay away from that as well. Um, I, I grew up watching my brother two years ahead of me up until midnight or 1am, which was a big deal in my household. We were, you know, like, we went to bed early to complete his homework. I mean, he was also like, he had lots of after school activities and it wasn't like, you know, from three until midnight, he was working on this, but, but he always just worked so hard. And uh, I mean, I did some of that when I went to boarding school, that was the first time that I really had to work hard, which is why it was so rough in that winter. But I mean, my brother and I grew up in the same environment. We were, you know, with my parents the entire time, but we think so differently. And we process so differently. So I can, um, and I mean, he was in Odyssey the Mind just as long as I was. So I don't think it was, you know, OM is the magic. I mean, I, I would love to say OM is the magic special sauce and I've went to enroll their kids in it because it's an amazing program, but I'm not making any kind of promises about what, what it'll do. So I know that he had the opportunity to develop those skills and he did develop those. He was very successful in Odyssey the Mind. But I do see that his brain works differently than mine. He is this, this fantastic musician. This um, he, he understands so many things that I could never hope to understand about art, about music, about you know human experience. And that's all despite growing up in the same environment. So I, it's not entirely nurture. I can tell you that because we had you know all of the same opportunities growing up, but we're so different, and we're both you know high achieving, he's in grad school, I'm in grad school, we're go, both going to get doctorates, everything like that. But in terms of how we do that, that's not a product of how we were brought up. So did you experience, maybe at the boarding school, did you witness any students that remained unchallenged through the process? I experienced students that presented as if they weren't. So I, imposter syndrome runs deep in the NCSSM school system (laughs) and being told you're the best and the brightest and and then getting, getting the seal of approval from the the government that you're the best and the brightest, you're going to the school. I think that puts a lot of risk on it to, for, for when you ask for help to admit that you are struggling. I doubt I'm thinking back to like the top, the, the kids that everyone knew their names. And in my school, it wasn't because you were an athlete or a jock. It was because, you know, you got a publication or you, whatever. I, of the ones that I knew personally and like actually had a, a friendship with, everyone was challenged in some way or another. For some people, the school, I think, came easier than others. I think that's always going to be the case. But you're also dealing with 16 and 17, you're like, there's so much else going on in your life then 
you're figuring out who you are, you're, you know, discovering yourself as a person. That's the first time you live alone, that it was challenging for everyone in different ways. I often tell students that they make assumptions that there are people that are making the racing exams without studying. And I guess hypothetically there could be, but I've yet to encounter those students. And particularly I wanted to ask about a school that particularly with that uh, rigorous of a curriculum to see if you witnessed it as well. I don't I'm know that anyone what... yeah, didn't study for exams at my school. <laughs> I'm curious what you think your mom might say to this question because you mentioned that she was the head of, not the head, but she taught, right? The, some of the gifted classes. So what do you yeah. think her answer would be? For nature and nurture? Mm-hmm. We can call her up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, if I were to think about all the experiences that she has had and everything that she has seen, especially working in that impoverished community, I think that she might have enough evidence to point to it's not genetics and it's not nurture necessarily because we, my school was very diverse and it was it was the public school it was the free school there were there was a private school that more affluent family members or families in the community would send their their children to and so really she was working with kind of the typically the most underperforming populations the low SES we still had gifted students in SES uh, or in, in our low SES population the gifted students from low SES in our school could outperform students at, at the private school, you know, that had more nurturing environments, more resources available. And so I think about the students that she must have known based on the students that I did know. And I don't know that she would be able to say, yeah, it's nurture because these students weren't necessarily nurtured prior to being identified. And I don't think that she'd be able to say, yeah, it's nature because they didn't come from a high achieving family. So that's what I think she would say. Yeah. And I kind of have a, I guess, almost a layperson's hypothesis on, I would suspect that those unlabeled or unidentified people with uh, high promise or high performers, you know, you might end up being the best farmer because of your ability to manipulate information or have nice strategic moves or, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, you might be the best business owner, you might be the best academic, you might not have the same opportunities, but you should excel in the area that you end up in, you know, regardless. And the multiple intelligences model, I guess, is would fall into that, The where you look at the different ways that people express themselves or separate yeah. themselves. So, well, thank you. Uh, what advice would you have for an aspiring academic? Um, let go of the ego as quick as possible. <laughs> like across the board, I think my life would have turned out a lot differently if I had gone to, you know, if I hadn't deigned to consider UNC, you know, like it's, I think I just, I needed to, you know, I was 18, I needed to check myself and I did not, um, but that's okay because life did it for me. So like that's part of the cautionary, but being in labs well before I probably should have ever been, I learned that 
I was going to mess up a whole lot more if I tried to make them think that I knew everything. than if I said, wait, no, can you repeat that? I need to write that down. I, I've thought about it. I, I've had, everyone has had imposter syndrome, especially when you're a woman in STEM. For me, it's been super helpful to focus less on my imposter syndrome and when I am actually just an imposter, when I don't know the things um, and focus on learning the things that I don't know rather than worrying so much about the things that I do to not be afraid to accept that I am not, I don't know everything. I might be the dumbest kid in the classroom and I'm gonna, everyone else knows it. So why not ask the dumb questions and really understand? I was just gonna ask, cause we, you were just mentioning kind of being a woman in STEM, now you're in grad school. So what's kind of your current experience like with trying, with being in that, that field? I don't know if this is a, an adaptive strategy or a maladaptive one. <laughs> um, I have worked in a lot of different fields, like like medicine, like math, some engineering fields. And I will say that the, the times that I've experienced the least amount of judgment based on being a woman were times where I led with something else. So I was not afraid to ask questions or I branded myself as, you know, I'm the data person, you know, or or I, I played up another one of my strengths to the point that that became almost more salient, or in some cases, not in the professional, more than the classroom, but I would play up a persona, you know, or, you know, sometimes that's just being kind of an a-hole, like, but I always managed to make some other part of myself more salient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it wasn't like, oh, well, there's the woman. It's like, oh, well, there's, you know, the asshole that's gonna, you know, make snarky remarks or, there's the person that knows nothing about the machines that we're looking at, but knows so much about data or, you know, things like that. And so that has really helped. And the times that I have not done that, which is funny, it's typically in in fields where it's more acceptable or more, you see more women. Those are actually the ones that I've experienced the most uh, unpleasant experiences with a few exceptions, but. uh, Actually pretty aligned with some of the research I've looked into with what happens when you have, you know, one woman, versus a couple versus more sounds I'm sure weird to the listener but it is indicative of what we find in that research what have you learned about yourself throughout this journey I have learned to be humble which maybe it doesn't seem like that after this interview (laughs) I've learned to be authentic I've learned to be super grateful for my parents and and just how I really, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this before and, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, but I do think at the end of the day, perhaps the most important factor to success is support. I would not be where I am now if, if I didn't have so many people telling me yes, or at least not telling me no. So I think that that is, if I had to give an answer where I might be wrong, that would be my answer. And what would you like the listener's biggest takeaway to be from your story? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I have a whole lot to, I guess, to offer. I'm still, you know, I'm, I am just in grad school. I'm just some grad student. So I don't know. Um, Say yes. Often try your, I guess it, it would go back to the OM to say, you know, if you took a risk and you failed, 
that's not necessarily failing. There are points for create. There are points for failing in style. For learning something along the way. That's great. I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. I loved hearing your story, and thanks, Emily. The Path to Tilt is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path to Stilled, all rights reserved.